Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whether thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you, yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, if he he is it that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him. And we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings. And the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye loved me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. 
Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And all God's children said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these words. We pray thee, Lord, that thou would spend, send thy spirit, even the Holy Ghost, unto us now, that we might understand these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, as I had said some time ago, there's just an awful lot of theology in this section of the Scriptures. The things that Jesus is saying um, are so profound and, quite frankly, I think difficult to understand. And I would go so far as to say absolutely impossible for the disciples to understand until they have received the Holy Ghost, which he said they are going to receive. And he's promised them that when they do receive the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost will bring to their mind and indeed place on their hearts the truths that Jesus has uh, spoken unto them. I find when I read this, my mind just starts to go in circles about what he's saying. And he continues to preach essentially the same thing. All through this section here is really the heart of Christianity in terms of our union with God. And so he's going to speak about his union with the Father and about his union with the Holy Ghost. He's going to liken himself to and say that he's even the same as the Holy Ghost, that really the Spirit of Christ, as it says in Romans, the Spirit of Christ and the Holy Ghost are really one and the same. And the Spirit of Christ is Christ. So when Christ returns to them, he's going to return in two ways. One, he's going to return physically to them after the cross, which he indeed does. But the world doesn't see him, but they see him. Because by that time, the disciples have received the Holy Ghost because he breathes on them later in the Gospel of John. But he also comes to them and to us through the Holy Ghost when the Holy Ghost indwells us. And so this is really where all of this is going. I've said this a number of times, that, that the, um, the essence and the heart of what God is doing here is he's creating people that are in the image and likeness of himself. And I say that in terms of the Godhead, that we are going to be like Christ and we are being conformed to his image and his likeness, which means we're going to be like him. And the only way that that can happen is if he indwells us. And that's what this is all about. And then we will have complete unity with God, which we have now to a certain degree, which we'll talk about as, as we get further into this. So keep in mind that this is really what this is all about, is unity um, with God. And so the Lord starts this section out, as I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, that he's uh, comforting his disciples. Um, night is, has come. It is the hour of darkness. And so their hearts are troubled because he's beginning to speak about him departing and going to the Father. He's told them that. He's going to the Father. Um, but they can't go. They cannot accompany him to the cross, nor can they accompany him to the Father yet. But there will come a time when they can accompany him to the Father. And so what I appreciate most about this in terms of the way this opens up when he says, let your hearts uh, be troubled, let not your hearts be troubled, is this. If it were me, I'd be a little preoccupied about what the next several hours hold for me because he's going to be crucified. He's going to be uh, betrayed in the garden. He's going to be taken before the high priest. They're going to abuse him. They're going to strike him. They're going to spit on him. Uh, They're going to endeavor to humiliate him through mockery. Then they're going to turn him over to Pilate. Who's going to turn him over to Herod? Who's going to send him back to Pilate? And uh, Pilate's going to condemn him. He's going to be scourged. And then he's going to be nailed to the cross. And he knows about all of this, and he's already told his disciples what's going to happen to him. So I would probably be thinking about that, um, but not our Lord. The, what is primarily on his mind is the thoughts and concerns and cares of his disciples. And that is where his heart is, and certainly that is a heart that we would endeavor to have, and a heart that we should indeed 
should have if Christ be in us. We see that in the um, Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 when he speaks about how he would be estranged for the sake of his brethren. In other words, he's really saying that, he's essentially saying the same thing that Christ did. You know, Christ was uh, estranged from the Father because of our sins, and Paul is basically saying the same thing, that I would be cast into hell if it meant the salvation of all of my brethren in the flesh. And that's where a Christian's heart should ultimately go, is that they would lay down their life eternally for their um, for the people that they love. Uh, and we have many people that we love. And so that's that's where the Lord's heart is. is he's always concerned, uh, first and foremost, about his um, disciples, which would, in this context that I'm speaking, it would include um, you and me. And so he's comforting them, and he's telling them all of the reasons why they should... Um, not be concerned about what's happening here. And indeed, not only should they not be concerned, but they should actually rejoice in it. So he's telling them, hey, I'm going to go prepare a place for you, which means that there's going to be something for you to look forward here because I'm going to go, I'm going to prepare this place. In the context, it means he's going to the cross and then he's going to return and he's going to bring them to the Father. And so he's going to speak again about this wonderful unity that they're going to enjoy through at the uh, when this whole process comes to uh, fruition. So in verse 2, he says that. My father's house are many mansions. There are places that exist for you. A mansion um, comes from a Latin root word that means to to dwell or to abide. And so he's talking about there's a place for you to live um, in my father's house. And if that was not the case, I would have told you that. So I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And we've talked about that in the past. What is his father's house? It's the temple. It's the church. Um, it is indeed the body of uh, Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, which our deacon read for us, he's, in verses 21 and 22, he speaks about that. He speaks about the building fitly framed together, groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye are also builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And so again, we have this idea that not only um, do we live in Christ, do not only do we live in God, but he lives in us. And so again, helping us to appreciate this wonderful unity that exists within the body of Christ, which in John 17, he's going to expand even further that we are one with each other. And so in verse 3, he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, ye may be also. So through the cross... Through his death, through his burial and resurrection, he goes to be with the Father. And again, our deacon read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, um, where he's, uh, he read about how we um, have all been ascended together with Christ. In verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 2, it's, I'll pick it up in verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so that's, what the, that's the benefit, certainly, of the cross. Um, one of them is that we are going to go and be with Christ forever in heaven with the Father. And so in verse 4 of John 14, the Lord says, Whether I go, you know, and the way you know. He's already told them what he's going to do and where he's going to go. But they don't understand it. Thomas says that, and he says, How, how, how can we know the way? And then in verse 6, we have that very profound statement where the Lord says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is but one way, there is one truth, 
and there is one life. And so all of the religions in this world which speak about many ways, uh, many roads to some place of um, eternal happiness or eternal bliss is patently false. There are not many ways, and there are not many happinesses to be had. Indeed, all roads lead to one of two places. <laughs> There's but one road, that would be the narrow way, through the straight gate, that leads to glory, that leads to Christ, that leads to um, um, eternal fellowship with the Lord, and that is Christ himself. All the other roads really merge to the broad way through the uh, wide gate, and those end in eternal destruction. There is no happiness or satisfaction uh, to be had on that other road, even though the world might have you believe otherwise. It's one way, one truth, and one life. And that life to be had is eternal life in Christ. Everything else is, in fact, death. And I appreciate the Lord stating that there is, in fact, one truth, because there is a truth that can be known, although the world would think that truth is relativistic. It is not relativistic. It is declared by God, for he himself is the truth. Christ himself is the truth. So the truth is actually a, a person. And that, can't, he, that truth can be known if you know Christ. So reiterating this fact that there's one way, one truth, one life, he says, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Even Christ went to the Father by himself, meaning through himself when he went to the cross and the book of Hebrews speaks about going through the veil of his flesh. So it was through his death, burial, and resurrection that he himself went uh, to the Father. On verse 7, he says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. So in verse 7 here, he's telling his disciples, You have seen the Father. Now, how have they seen the Father? Because they've been um, fellowshipping, at least certainly superficially, with Christ. They've been walking with him. They've seen the things that he does. And he has told them that the works he do, it's the Father doing the works in him. He's already told them that the things that I say, it's the Father speaking in me. Everything the Lord did, he did according to his Father's will. Um, so if you're with Christ, you're essentially with the Father in the context that he, the characteristics and attributes of the Father are um, expressed to you um, through Christ himself. And that's what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Uh, when the Lord says here that, speaking of Christ, he says he is the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person. Christ is the brightness of God's glory and he is the expressed image of God's person. So when Christ was uh, with his disciples and doing all of the things that he did, he himself bodily is how God the Father expresses himself to people. That's why he's uh, declared to be the Word the logos of God. He is the, the vehicle by which God communicates his characteristics and attributes to us. And so all of the things that Jesus said, well, again, that's the Father teaching, that's the Father expressing his will to us. The wonderful miracles that Jesus did, that's the mercy and compassion and love of the Father manifest in the works that Christ did. When the Lord Jesus was speaking of judgment and righteousness, that's God's judgment and righteousness um, that is uh, manifest in the things that he said. Um, that's the veracity and the reality and the truth of those things. There's no difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. So it's all in Christ, the same uh, yesterday, today, and forever. So Christ is the manifestation of that. And so I know often uh, we have asked ourselves, well, isn't there another way that God could have done things to get us to glory? Well, we have learned so much about God through what Christ did, including his trip 
to the cross. And so we, we learn about uh, God's um, judgment on the cross. We learn about his love on the cross because he laid down his life for us. How would we have known those things if he had skipped everything from Genesis chapter 2 you know, to the book of Revelation? How, how, what would we know of God if he had skipped all of this stuff in the, in the interim, that he simply made man and Genesis chapter 1 in his image and likeness at that time, and then nothing else transpired? What would we know of God when we get to uh, glory? We would see the lamb, but we would not see the... Um, prince in his hands and his feet and that I've always found that interesting when it speaks of that in the book of Revelation that the Lamb of God yet contains those things we know that when Christ was crucified his visage was marred more than any others and he was scourged and so he was really very bloody when he was upon the cross and all of that was healed except for the hand prince and the, and the um, where he was pierced by the, uh, the uh, spear of the uh, soldier so we see those things, and we will know him as the one who loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. But we would know none of those things if God had not manifested himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And we saw all of this um, um, work itself out in the course of human history. So as he, the Lord had said um, that he was going to a place where they could not come, where they could not accompany him, also in Hebrews 1, 3 here, it says the same, it says the same thing here. It says, when he had by himself meaning Christ, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, um, Hebrews chapter 1 succinctly says what Jesus is saying here in in a number of ways that um, what he's going to do, he's going to do by himself, and they cannot uh, accompany him. And then he's going to the Father, because again in this verse he speaks about sitting on the uh, right hand of the majesty on high. He's sitting with his Father in his Father's throne. Uh, in the book of Revelation, it speaks about uh, us too. It's, um, well, I'm not going to be able to find it quickly, but he says to us, uh, it's actually in um, Revelation chapter 4, excuse me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he speaks of the saints, the Christians, the elect. He says, he that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my father in his throne. There's one throne. Jesus is sitting in his father's throne, and yet he owns it as his own throne, and he's telling us if we overcome, which of course we do through Christ, we will sit down with him in that throne as well. So again, we see this wonderful reiteration of the unity we have with the father. So we are yet with him in heaven now because Christ is in us, and yet he is on the earth with us because he is in our hearts now. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 there, very succinctly says a number of things that the Lord is saying here. Also with respect to this this unity, um, in Ephesians chapter 4, it speaks of that again about this unity. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, it says in in verse 4, there is one body. That would be the body of Christ. There is one body. And one spirit, that be the Holy Ghost, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. Christ himself is the hope of glory. That is the hope that we have. There's but one hope, and that is Christ. There is one Lord, verse 5, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So again, speaking of the unity that we have with God through Christ himself. And so um, back to um, John chapter 14 here. Again, I want us to appreciate this unity because, again, it is all through this section here. Um, 
In verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it suffices us, even though the Lord has just said, you um, have seen me, you've seen the Father. So in verse 9, we pick it up here. It says, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest then, thou show us the Father? So the Lord is saying very clearly here, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that certainly is um, consistent with what I'm sharing with us in terms of all of the characteristics and attributes of the Father are manifest in Christ himself. Verse 10 here, he's speaking of this unity. He says, believe thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Jesus has already told the people that he is one with the Father. And the uh, Jews picked up stones to stone him because he was essentially saying that he and the Father um, were one and the same, that he was equal with the Father, and indeed we know that he is. In Christ Jesus um, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead um, was in him. All the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in, in Christ. Um, so, Again, he's helping us to appreciate here that everything that he says, it's the Father speaking in me. And so he says that, uh, that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. He has already shared that with them, that if you can appreciate the works' sake, you ought to understand that it is God in me that is doing these very things. Verse 11, he reiterates, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. Now, verse 12 through 14 are an interesting set of verses because if you want to raise lots of money and open a wonderful TV ministry, this would be a go-to verse for you here. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name... That will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In case there's any question here, he says, If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. I appreciate the Lord giving me a blank check here. Sometimes people like to think of him as a genie in the bottle, and you need but rub it to get God to do what you want him to do, that he will jump through whatever hoops you want. And you could show some faith by sending us a little money, And if you still can't get God to do whatever you want him to, well, then you just don't have enough faith and it would be more manifest if you would actually give more money. And I've seen that argument on TV when TV evangelists are trying to get you to send them money. Obviously, that's not what this means. Is there anybody here who has raised somebody from the dead recently or walked on water? Because Jesus has said here that we will do greater things than that he has done if we believe in him. Now, I believe in him. Um... But I'm not about to jump out of an airplane or the top of a temple or to walk across water because, or try to raise somebody from the dead. So clearly what he's speaking about here is in the context of him speaking to the disciples and that they are going to receive the Holy Ghost and God is going to work in them to glorify himself just like he's worked in Christ and the works that Christ did glorify the Father, the disciples. These disciples themselves, these fellows here, are going to go out into the world And because there's 12 of them, which does not include Judas, but rather um, the Apostle Paul, they are going to go out into the world, and they are going to spread the gospel. Whereas Jesus was only in one place at any particular time, and he did miracles associated with being in one place at a time, and he preached the gospel at one place at any particular point in time, these are going to go out with Christ in them, and they are going to be preaching the gospel by way of example. Twelve places, 
at 12 different times. And so that's the context of what this is going to take place here. Now, we can appreciate that when we look at the book of Acts, that it did come to true uh, rather quickly. We know that Peter raised somebody from the dead. He raised Dorcas from the dead. You can read about that in Acts chapter 9, uh, verse 36 and following. But um, Peter, in order for God to authenticate the gospel, he empowered the disciples to do signs and wonders so that people would believe the message. So in Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we read about uh, what was going on with the disciples. And it says in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. So the apostles, plural, are doing these different things, signs and wonders, among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. How many people um, believe, truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ when he was present preaching? About none. You know, how many people were at the cross? How many people were in the garden with him and then fled? Um, so there are many people believing on the Lord now because the Holy Ghost is in them and God is pouring his Holy Ghost out. He's making their ministry effectual. I simply want us to appreciate here that when you preach the gospel, unless God be in it, unless God is working in you and through you and working in the recipient of it, then it's not going to take, the people are not going to believe it. That is what's taking place here in Acts chapter 5 as the Lord is pouring out his spirit and he's empowering the disciples to do these signs and wonders to help the people authenticate the message. And so verse 14 again, it says, Believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, insomuch as they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. And there came also a multitude of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, you read a lot about people bringing um, their infirm people to Jesus to be healed, but not about them laying them out so that even his shadow might fall upon them. So, again, this is, uh, helps us to appreciate what the Lord is saying here in terms of that they will do greater works because he goes to the Father. Because he went to the Father through the cross, and because when he went to the Father, then he gave them the Holy Ghost. Further on in Acts chapter 19... We read about the Apostle Paul, and it says in verse 11, and again, it's glorifying God here, it says, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs, or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. So you don't read about people doing that either with respect to Christ, that they might take something of his and take it somewhere else, and people just touching it would then be healed. I'm not speaking of the woman who had an issue of blood of 12 years. She came to Christ, touched the hem of his garden, uh, garment, which we know represents the law and his righteousness um, from the book of Numbers. Um, the Apostle Paul also raised um, a young man, Eutychius, from the dead. Remember when he was preaching, he was up on the third loft and he fell asleep and then fell down and was taken up dead. Paul raised him to the, uh, back to life. So when the Lord is speaking here in John chapter 14, this is not a blank check. 
It applied for a specific period of time to a specific number of people that he would be glorified and the gospel would go forth out into the world. Now, this is also a qualified statement here in verse 13 and in verse 14 when he says in verse 13, whatsoever ye ask in my name. And in verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, what does that mean to ask something in Jesus' name. It certainly doesn't mean to append Jesus' name onto the end of a prayer as though that therefore legitimizes everything that you've said. What it means is to ask something in conformity to his authority, according to his character, and according to his nature. Now, if there's any question about that, in John, uh, 1 John um, chapter 5, verse 14, the Lord expands on that a little bit. When he says in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So again, as Christ did everything according to the will of his heavenly Father, so too should we do everything according to his will, which indeed would be according to the will of our Heavenly Father. So he says that in verse 14 here, if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. If we're not going to ask something according to his will, it's by implication he's not going to hear us and he's not going to do it. So there is no blank check to be had here. This We should appreciate this and understand that we are acting according to his character, his nature, and his authority. Now, with respect to praying for things, um, what do you suppose we ought the most to pray for? Well, in verse 15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 16, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you um, forever. So I would suggest that the first thing we ought to be praying for is to keep his commandments, to do things according to his will, to be obedient unto him. That ought to be the first thing we pray for. And how do you suppose we could do that? Well, we know we fight this war between our flesh and our spirit, and we can't do the things that we ought for the um, flesh lessest against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are at enmity one with another so that you can't do uh, what you would. So in fighting this battle to endeavor to overcome the flesh, um, we ought to pray for more love because therein is the motivation then to uh, keep the Lord's commandments, to be obedient unto him, to walk according to his will. So I appreciate that the Lord says, well, I'll pray for you that you'll receive the Holy Ghost because in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we appreciate that it is the Holy Ghost. It is by the Holy Ghost that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And it says here in Romans 5, 5, it says, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. And so we would love the Lord more um, if we had more of his Spirit uh, in us. And so my prayer would be, for me personally, would be that I would love more God I would love God more, and his love would be more manifest in me in the things that I do and the things that my hearts and affections are on. We know that he says here, keep my commandments. We would ask ourselves, well, which commandment would that be? 
Well, what is the first and greatest commandment? The Lord tells us that, that we would love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto the first, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So all the commandments can be boiled down into two, loving God and loving our neighbor. So if we would do those two things, we would indeed keep the commandments of, of God. And so I appreciate that in verse 16, the Lord says that he would pray the Father and that he would give us another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Now, he says another comforter. Well, there's two apparently. Who's the first one? It's Christ himself. He's right there. He's comforting them. So he says, I'm going to go and you're going to get another comforter. And um, not only will you receive this other comforter, but that he would abide with you forever forever well if God is in you forever what does that say about your life it says it's eternal and um, we know that we have received the spirit Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 speaks about how we have received the um, the spirit of God that is the earnest deposit which means that we have a little bit and we're going to get more of it now I know man convolutes everything but what is an earnest deposit it's a deposit that is non-refundable that you put on, let's say, when you're buying a piece of real estate, and the reason it's non-refundable is because they expect you to and want you to um, consummate the deal and give them the rest of the money. But we have lawyers to make sure we don't always have to do the things that we promise to do. But that's not the way it works in God's economy. He has given us the earnest deposit of the Holy Ghost, and he shall abide with us forever. And we shall receive more of that when we put off the flesh and and, uh, be with him um, forever. So in verse 17, then he says, he refers to the Holy Ghost as the spirit of truth. Spirit of truth. Well, Jesus is the truth. So if the Holy Ghost is the spirit of truth, it's really the spirit of Christ. And Romans, uh, I think it's chapter 8, speaks about that. Speaks about the spirit of Christ. If any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So the spirit of Christ and the Holy Ghost are really one and the same thing. And the world cannot receive it because he's not going to give the Holy Ghost to everybody. He's going to give it to the elect and only to the elect. And the uh, world can't see it because it doesn't see Christ for who he is. No man can see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. And so this is kind of a loop here that you can't see him until you receive him. And then when you receive him, you will see him. He says, but you know him. It says, uh, I'll read verse 17 uh, slower here. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. So he's speaking of the spirit of truth, and he's telling them right now that he dwells with them right now. In other words, it's me, it's Christ. So in this section here, you're getting a wonderful um, appreciation for the Trinity, how God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are all one and the same. They are three separate, yet they are one. So Jesus himself is saying here that I'm the Holy Ghost too. Um, And then I'm dwelling with you and he shall be in you. So at some point, again, goes to the Father, prays the Father that you receive the Holy Ghost. You receive the Holy Ghost, which then dwells in you. And now you have Christ in you, and so he's come back to be with you. And indeed, he's come back to be with all of the elect who have been regenerated. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. Um, better translation would be, I would not leave you orphaned. And that's what you'll see in your um, side note there. I will not leave you as orphans. Well, what is an orphan but somebody who doesn't have a father? So he's saying, I will come to you. Well, I guess he's 
He's the Father also. He's one and the same with the Father because if Christ leaves you and he says, um, but I'm not going to leave you orphanless, but I'm going to come back to you, then again, he's equating himself with the Father. So again, you have the Trinity here with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He says, I will come to you. Verse 19, yet a little while and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me because I live, ye shall live also. I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down and I lift it up again. I'm going to lift my life up again. And when I do that, of course, he will live forever. And because I live forever, you are going to live together, live forever, excuse me, because I'm an eternal being and I'm going to be inside you. Therefore, you are an eternal being also. So again, we're speaking of the unity, not only of the Godhead, but the unity between the Godhead and you and me. So we are all one um, in Christ. And verse 20 says, At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Now he's wrapping it all together here. At that day, what would that day be? Well, that would be the day when he comes to us, the, uh, the Holy Ghost. Then when that happens, then you will know that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Now, without getting algebraic here, if Jesus is in the Father and I'm in Jesus, where does that put me? In the Father. If the Father's in the Son and I'm in the Son, then we're dwelling in the same abode here with, um, with Christ in Christ. And I'd already read to you that in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says that the Father and the Son are going to make their abode with us. So in that section, it speaks of them as separate. In this section, it's speaking of them as one and the same. So again, we have this wonderful um, unity that takes place there. Now, I think I'm going to stop there, and then we'll pick up verse 21 next week. But I would say this uh, to us. I find this very comforting, and the disciples, if they understood what was being said, they would find it comforting too, but they have not yet received the Holy Ghost, so I don't think they can appreciate it and and understand it. Now, because I understand it, because I've received the Holy Ghost, and you should understand it too, let me ask you this. Do you let yourself get caught up in the affairs of this world? I mean, do we have an eternal perspective about where this is all going in spite of all of this foolishness that we see? Do we think for a moment that God is not in control of everything? And so do we find ourselves getting upset about things? Do we find ourselves getting angry at people um, when they pull in front of us, let's say, when we're driving? Um, Do we not appreciate that um, they are blind to all of these truths, that they do not um, have a relationship with God, that they are on the broad way, that they are in bondage to Satan, they're in bondage to sin, they're in bondage to the things of this world? Um, Could we say in our hearts what Jesus did when he was on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Um, Let's lower it. Could we do what Stephen did? Because Stephen was a Christian. He's not God. He's a Christian. Could we say what Stephen did? Lord, hold this sin not to their charge. Could we do that? Well, we could do, I think, if we would behold God in his glory in heaven, like Stephen did when they were fixing to stone him. That if we had an eternal perspective, I think we could easily let go of the offenses that we um, think we have suffered um, in this world. When I think of some of the saints that were uh, martyred over the course of the years, over the years because of their testimony for Christ, you know, they were um, coerced or they were, uh, people were endeavoring to coerce them into denying Christ and they wouldn't do it. 
they would let themselves be bound and tortured and burned at the uh, stake. And I recall uh, one saint in particular, I don't, I don't recall his name, but he put his hands out in the flames and washed his hands in the flames. And so he was ready and prepared and willing to go be with the Lord and put this world behind. And so that should be our exhortation too, and that should be our heart too. And Ephesians chapter 11 speaks about those that have preceded us who look for a building uh, with foundations whose builder and maker was God. They had no interest in this world, and that's why they lived in tents. You know, they were, we were just passing through. And so like them, we too are pilgrims. And our hearts, our conversation is heaven from whence we look for the coming Savior. And so uh, let that be um, um, something that helps us to have compassion and love on our fellow men, is that we are eternal beings and are going to be with glory, and that we should pray for them, that that might be true for them as well. So I'll say amen to that. Amen.